Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry. However, many of the practices that we take for granted are out of date, illogical, or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room, and I'm here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a couple of F-bombs thrown in for good measure. Pilates Elephants is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher who really fucking knows your stuff. Hey, Chloe. Hi, Ralph. Bit of, bit of a new intro there. I heard a bit of a, uh, an extra F-bomb thrown in the intro. Yeah, why the fuck not, eh? <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. We're, we're on. We're on. Well, <laughs> nice to nice to see you and talk to you, Ralph. Yeah, likewise. A bit excited about our special guest today. Hey, David. Um, hi, <laughs> hi, everyone. Um, I'm David. I'm my main claim to fame is I'm Chloe's dad. Woo! <laughs> and just but, before um, just before we got on here, you were telling us how Chloe's your favourite daughter too. <laughs> Is Leah listening to this? Leah will be listening will. to this. Episode. She will. I've got many favourite daughters <laughs> and many favourite grandchildren. Uh, We're, all favorites. We're all favourites. We're all favourites. Yeah, so that's my main claim to fame. But um, I think I've been invited aboard for a few more little bits of experiential <laughs> knowledge than that. I'm 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 retired now, but I'm a family therapist by trade. But I worked many years um, in change in drug and alcohol and with men in prison, people in prison, and the last uh, more than decade of my working life was with people who had had uh, severe chronic um, trauma and attachment issues as children and, you know, in institutional context. Um, And many of them were simply trying to survive the impact of their childhood. So... We're here to talk today about how to help people change, and so I, I guess uh, you've got some experience of that. Um, so tell me, like, is it actually possible to help people change? I mean, yeah. don't, don't people have yeah, to, yeah. like, change themselves? It's a good question. Yeah, but the answer is yes, it is, because, um, you know, for different reasons in different ways, people run out of steam. People want different things. People people offer, you know, people dream and aspire to different things in their lives. And, and most of those people have had attempts. Um, they've tried. Mm. And then eventually they run out of steam. I, I'm a big believer that it's about morale. Um, you know, when you keep not sort of quite getting to where you want to go, eventually it's a blow to morale. Um, And people have very, very low morale. Um, I know in the mental health industry, so often morale gets misdiagnosed as depression or, you know, um, all all sorts of things. It gets pathologised. But Mm. actually, like you or I, anybody who's tried something and failed, just, just haven't been... um, your morale gets knocked around mm. and people then that, that's morale's an energetic thing. It ties, it ties into your energy. And if your morale's low, your energy's low 
and you start to go into a vicious circle of like negativity. I can't do it. It's too hard. I can't. It won't work. Mm. Nothing ever works. So I, I think, you know, to to help people find a, a morale boost is the first step. Wow, that's that's so interesting. And, Raph, I think that, that I mean, we see this. I, Dad, Dad was seeing it in, in the respect of um, the trauma and, and et cetera that, that he's – clients had had experience and I believe that us in the in the Pilates industry I mean where we see this lack of morale will be really with our a lot of the time is with our persistent pain clients the the client who has you know been living with that that back pain or etc cetera, etc cetera, for years and being told you know oh th- this person's got a fix for it or this is a fix for it or this is a fix for it and it's like you know, it's like, well, I keep getting told I've got to fix for all of these things and, and nothing's ever worked. And it's sort of, it does really chip at you and wear you down. And I think that's, I'm loving uh, thinking of how do we explore this, you know, how do you explore boosting some, someone's morale? Like, how do you go about doing that? Sure, sorry, just before we go there, David, yeah. I, I agree with you 100%, Chloe. I also think, though, it applies to people um you know, so David, your experiences in drug and alcohol and you know, severely traumatised into people in institutional context, people in prison, but the same framework applies to people changing, you know, their exercise habits um, or their eating habits or any other, you know, giving up smoking or whatever it might be. And so I think, you know, Chloe, I agree 100% with you on the pain thing, like and people can lose their their mojo, get you know, feel unable to make the required changes um, when it comes mm. to, to changing uh, their lifestyle in chronic pain, um, but also just exercise. Like, so if you're a Pilates instructor or a fitness trainer or a yoga teacher or someone out there who just sees kind of healthy people who want to get in shape or, you know, feel healthier or whatever, like a lot of times the, the thing stopping those people from doing that is – the belief that they've, you know, they're basically they've tried before multiple times. Mm. They don't back themselves to stick with the change, and so that might manifest as them saying like, "Oh yeah, I tried it, didn't work." You know, they mm. might sort of externalise it as like, "Oh yeah, X Y Z didn't work for me." Um, mm. uh, but basically, it comes it, it comes down to them not backing themselves, not feeling they've got the resources to make that change and, and stick with it. Would Would you agree with that, David, or or not? Yeah, you know, that's that's how it all loops back, Raph, because you remember your first question was about, um, you know, people need to do it, you can't do it for them. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a real interrelationship with how people who are struggling seek experts to help. Um, and there's a real trap that, that responsibility for the change is given over to the experts and they keep failing. And what people, the internal experience of that is, I'm hopeless. No one can help me. I can't, you know. So it, it all joins into the whole thing. So, the, I mean, for people, for anyone who, for whom is in the position of trying to, to support change, um, that morale boost needs to go back to the person themselves and their capacity to do it. And... Um, you know, the important thing in this is that, like, and this is well recognised in all sorts of motivational change perspectives, is small achievable changes. Um, 
that then you maintain because I think from a motive, everywhere I look at people with motivational interviewing perspectives, uh, maintaining the change is neglected. Mm. So, all right, Mm. so I think the big thing that jumped out at me there was that uh, basically people have low self-efficacy, low, you know, low – a low confidence in their own ability to make the change and uh, that has become externalised, you know, probably through a lot of well-meaning practitioners who've, you know, positioned themselves, the practitioner, as like the change agent, you know, I will change this for you. Um, And when that didn't work, uh, you know, the, 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 the person can sort of develop this kind of learned helplessness or basically feeling like it's not, it's not, it's not in my locus of control to do something about this. I have to seek an external person who can help me with it. And so when we, uh, as, you know, as movement professionals, you know, as change agents, because essentially as movement professionals, a hundred percent of our work involves the client changing, right? So we don't actually do anything, you know, we don't massage people or crack them or, inject them with drugs or operate on, we don't do anything to the client. The client does all the things. So we, everything we do relies on the client changing. Um, so as change agents, as movement professionals, we need to build up the client's expectation of success, not by building up ourselves and saying, hey, I can fix this for you, but rather mm-hmm. by saying, hey, here's some evidence, some credible evidence that you can fix this for yourself. Yes, and and then you notice you you can notice people's change and say, "Wow, you couldn't do this a month ago, and you can do this today." Mm. And then the focus is on, well, how can you do it? What do you? What's your practice to do this tomorrow and the next day to maintain it? Because mm. that's when it, you know, that's what happens. People, um, people get people get focused on something. Um, that perhaps is achievable in the really long term instead of what they've achieved today. Mm. And, and that thing, you can only achieve, your achievements of today are sort of everything. Okay. So oh, I love that, Dad. Let's bring this into like a, a super practical, you know, nuts and bolts realm. And so, you know, a client, a potential client comes in and or talking to them on the phone or whatever and they're saying like, oh, gee, I'd love to do Pilates with you but – you know, I've tried exercise in the past and it just didn't work for me. Um, you know, I've tried all the personal trainers in the world, all the, you know, mm. whatever, get fit quick schemes, whatever, and it just, I, it didn't stick for me and I think I'm a hopeless case, you know. So, mm. so, so as a movement, you know, assuming that person doesn't have like made depressive disorder or <laughs> serious mental health issues, like they're just mm. a regular person who's become mm. discouraged about their ability to stick with exercise, okay. How, how can we as movement professionals who aren't psychologists how can we approach that conversation in a constructive way that's going to increase that person's chance of success? Uh, well, you know, that's the situation you described was one that would just come to me like every day. What's the, like, what's the use? Um, you know, the best example I could give, the best, the best one that I always go back to was uh, with men in prison that were mandated to do these behavioural change courses. It's it's fascinating because once I started working with forensic people in prisons, that they basically use a relapse prevention model. I thought this is like a drug and alcohol relapse prevention model. And men would come along and say, well, we have to be here. What use is it? 
what use is it possibly going to be? And I would just say, I don't know, why don't you find out? Give it a shot. What have you got to lose? Give it a shot and let's find out. And we'll reevaluate in a month. Let's see. Um, so basically I would just challenge them to have an open mind. It's like in life opportunities come and you never know. You just never know. This is the hope aspect of things. Like I, in those cases people are saying, look, I'm really feeling pretty I'm pretty demoralised and hopeless. Mm. So use the conversation to inject a bit of hope. I don't know. Why don't you try? You've got here. We've mm. got some ideas. They've worked for others. You've got nothing to lose. Give it a crack and we'll evaluate them up. Mm. Let's see where you're at now and we like, let's just see. When um, So it's really, it's really kind of getting a toehold of hope, you know, in there with that person to start, you know, to, to initiate yeah. the process and get them sort of actively participating. Yeah, that's mm. a good, yeah, that's a good description. So, you know, for your, you know, people that you're working with there, they were, they were in prison, they were, you know, physically, you know, forced <laughs> to be present yeah. in those. So yeah. they weren't there by their own free will. Um, no. But you know what, people who come along that have got those sorts of reservations, they don't feel they're there of their free will. They think this chronic conditions push me into this. I don't want to be here. Mm-hmm. It's not fair. I don't want this. Fuck this. Mm. I want to feel good. Why can't I, you know, th- everyone feels pushed around about the things that they don't like in their lives. So to, so everyone comes from that. And that's one of the things that contributes to that vicious cycle of negativity. Mm. People feel they're pushed around by it. So one of the steps is to hand back to them it as an opportunity rather than being pushed into it. Why am I here? I'm here because, you know, my lower back has I've not been able to pick anything much up for five years. Yeah. 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 I love that. So uh, what then um, – so, all right, so someone comes in – they basically, you know, or you're having some kind of interaction with someone, whether it's over DM on Instagram or in person or on the phone or whatever, and they're basically saying to you, hey, look, you know, I've tried X, Y, and Z before, nothing worked for me. Um, and, you know, your response is like, well, you know, why don't, why don't, why don't you just give this a go? You know, what's yeah, the worst that could happen? You know? Yeah. And what made you think of this? What made you think of this as an alternative? Huh. Like what What are the – how come this occurred to you? Who's it? And often, you know, often people have been referred, like someone will make a suggestion, oh, I had this and this did this. Yeah, yeah. But there, with people, there's, a, there's, a, there's an inbuilt cynicism with people. Um, I've got a friend who's had serious long-term chronic pain and I know things that would work, and I don't even suggest them to him because I see when others make suggestions, he just he can't listen. Yep. So, so presenting things in a way that people can listen is important, and I think that toehold of hope, it gets people's attention. Mm. Yeah. So somehow they have to be able to listen to your message, and people who have tried and failed, um, it's very hard for them to to hear it. Mm. What you said there about 
uh, actually the way that you framed that uh, question as like, well, you know, you tell me like, why, why are we having this conversation basically? Like what, you know, what, what brought you here or why, why did you think it was worth talking to me and have, and having this conversation today? It's like, well, that's essentially eliciting from them. Yeah, right. some change. Yeah, so like, and what, some change talk. Right. Yeah. So, so like, if they had absolutely a hundred percent certainty that there was no use talking to you, like they wouldn't be talking to you, right? They, yeah. So, so there's some, you know, one percent or more of them, you know, believes that there is hope, and so you're asking them to tell you about that. Yeah, and you're probably looking to reframe it because it'll be something like those blokes in prison, mm-hmm. like, yeah, nothing else has worked. A mate told me to come here. I know it's going to be shit, but I'm calling. Right. And, yeah. <laughs> and all right. And so, uh, and you know, so this is something that, uh, you know, we get in the exercise world where, you know, the, and this is my experience where like often the friend or the husband of what of a client comes yeah. in and you say, why are you here? And they're like, oh, my bloody wife told me to be here. That's where I'm here, you know. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, what I've used in the past, and I'm interested in your view on this, is stuff like, well, you know, why do you, why do you, why do you think your wife suggested this for you? You know, does, do you think she wants the best for you? And if so, like, what, do, what benefit do you think she sees for you in this? Well, that's a nice positive reframe. As a family therapist, I'm a little loath to But, yes, it's like it's a family therapy strategy. To be honest, um. I'd be trying to lead someone into, I'd be more inclined to ask, what's going on with you that you've followed up on the suggestion? Mm. Yeah, and, you know, because it's probably more than just getting the other person off their back. You know, in therapy, um, those sort of third-party referrals are were often really difficult, often would fail because people are trying to push people into doing what they want to do. So when I would get them, I would immediately try to find something that motivated the person themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so yeah, gee. So from what I know of, you don't usually do what your wife tells you to do. <laughs> <laughs> what 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 is it about this one? What's what 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 about yeah. us interests you? What about Pilates interests you? What about what do you think? What have you seen here? And, oh, that's cool. Yeah, and if someone goes, well, I'm not sure, then it doesn't matter. That's okay because you've it's it's re, it's opened up a different conversation about the possibilities of the 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 Pilates contributing to something good in their lives rather than they've been nagged into going, which is not a particular conversation you want to get into right. from, and, my, and from so, my experience. So if you ask like, okay, so, you know, what do you, wh- wh- why did you agree? To, why did you agree to come here? Or what, what do you, you know, what did you hope might happen? You know? Yeah. When, when that's we, it, Yeah. That'd be much more. Yeah. What, what is it? Yeah. What, what do you hope? What, what could be good about it? Even though you've been bullied into it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, Chloe, are you taking notes because I am for um, conversations with future clients. It's this is just this is absolute gold, um, and it's 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 amazing, Dad. Those those tiny tweaks in how we do, you know, in how we frame the question. Um, I've been noticing. I've been finding some little tweaks with at the moment. I've been doing um, some one-on-one mentoring um, with with 
instructors, studio owners, et cetera. And it's been interesting. So I've been very interested um, lately in, in changing language and, and what sort of questions can be more helpful than other questions. And I found just making a few little tweaks here and there. And it can be this just simply reframing a word. Like, and it's just, it's a huge impact. So um, I love that, making it about them as opposed to what was that external driving force that, that, and that, and that's interesting too, Raph, when I think about all the, um, and I've, I've got to be honest, these predominantly men that came to um, group classes with me that were there because they had in fact been told by their girlfriend or their wife or that they had to go, the retention of those clients was not good. Like they would come, they would begrudgingly do the one class or the two classes, but that that motivation or whatever whatever we want to call it to actually stay doing it it wasn't there because it wasn't their motivation Does right. it, can, like can, i don't know if that's the right way yeah. to say it, but you know can what? I, yeah can i like, can i'd like just pause us here for a moment and have yeah. like a uh i don't know like a sort of a magic moment um yeah uh and because i think you've just you know like really pulled together what what david's been talking about which is that basically People don't change because other people tell them to change. And people yeah. don't change because other people tell them why to change. You, know, you need to change because you need to go to Pilates because Boom. I love it and yeah. it'd be good for your back and you're always telling me how you don't have energy. People don't change because other people tell them. But people, people change when they tell you why they should change. Yes, and then they – and then they when people notice changes that – are reinforcing and you start to get into this virtual cycle so people can say wow that pain is lessened or i can pick that up or i can do that um you know yeah. I, I can surf again after being out of the water for 12 months mm-hmm. they're the sorts of things so that that from in my mind um and i've been thinking a bit about this lately um because i've got a I've got a cousin who's got who's waiting for a heart transplant and she's really she's she's been waiting for six years and she's exhausted. And it's like a I thought when when I listened to her talk about the problem, I thought this is almost like a sports psychology model. What happens when you're just really exhausted? What are the sort of things that get you going again? Mm. And um, you know, often they're so small. What happened? The thing about um, chronic conditions, chronic conditions especially, is they become timeless. Um, to feel hopeful about things, you need a sense of past, present, future, because hope is a future-focused perspective. And when every day seems the same, it's very hard to it's very hard to imagine anything different in another day. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Building in very small but simple things. So not looking at big deal things like you have to get to here. Instead, let's on Tuesdays let's go for a walk. On Wednesdays, let's sit on the back porch and look at the colour of the sky. So uh, you start to build up a routine that has got change in it. All right. So this, so this oh, is cool. this is where the you know, the kind of the basically motivational interviewing framework that we've been discussing sort of intersects with the the stages of change by Petrasca and De Clemente, which is, it says that people make changes in, you know, not always exactly the same steps, but basically in basically 
you know, sequence. People don't go from zero to a thousand kilometers an hour overnight. Generally, they, you know, it's better to start out with by creating a, any kind of tiny routine that is just a teeny bit better than what you're currently doing. And then sort of drawing that, you know, like, uh, affirming their efficacy by saying, Hey, look what you did. Did you see you, you know, went for a walk three times last week. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Yeah. So, so you, you, in that perspective, you're trying to move people become contemplative and plan and get into action. Um, interesting. I went to a masterclass that they did a couple of years ago and they talked about that they had now revised their text and removed the explore ambivalence part of it because they realized that exploring ambivalence simply made you ambivalent. Oh, wow. It simply confirmed your ambivalence. So there's another thing if, you know, so that for me, that was a load off, like, just forget it. If people, of course, people are ambivalent, of course, but forget it. That's not our job together. You've called me. We're going to change something. Can we, can we just double click on this a little Raf? because, um, the three of us know what motivational interviewing is, but I think potentially we haven't actually sort of the, the word motivational interviewing has been mentioned a few times right. so far in this episode, but we haven't actually said, hey, so this is what motivational interviewing is. And I think that that would be really fascinating for a lot of our, in, our listeners and also um, the diploma crew who do, in fact, learn motivational, motivational interviewing yeah. technique techniques is fantastic. So could we just get a bit of an explanation of that and then dad can then we can sort of understand more, well, what does exploring ambivalence mean? Yeah. Who wants to explain means, motivational interviewing? It means it's something we're not going to do. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll, I'll have a crack at defining it. And then I've got a question okay. for you, David, on like, okay, well, what do we do when someone is ambivalent, you know, instead of exploring it? So um, so motivational interviewing is a technique uh, basically created by two uh, academic psychologist Stephen Rolnick and Bill Miller out of the University of New Mexico in the 80s, 90s, something like that. Um, and it is a technique for helping, for basically for having constructive conversations about change with people. Um, and it's uh, for helping people when they're feeling ambivalent about change to actually, you know, move, make a decision on their own behalf to move forward with the change. And there's, it's got extremely robust um research support. There's a couple of systematic reviews and meta-analyses um, that have found that it consistently produces, you know, beneficial effects. And it's in uh, such a wide ranging, um, you know, areas as like drug and alcohol, uh, diabetes, exercise, diet, weight loss, um, smoking cessation. You know, it's been shown to have beneficial people. Like uh, one study, a systematic review in 2005 um, found that an, a 15-minute intervention by doctors using motivational interviewing resulted in uh, in improvements, significant improvements in health uh, and physical and mental health, uh, you know, year, maintained years later in 64% of of people. So it's incredibly, <laughs> um, in terms of time, the time, the amount of time you spend doing it, to the 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 profound effects and long-reaching effects you can have, incredibly useful technique. Did, did I miss anything, David? Did I get that right? No, you got that fairly comprehensively. The only other thing I'd say that surprised me is that in our prisons for the very, very, very worst of serial offenders, it is the, it is the basis that their programs are built around. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, which really surprised me when I saw it. I thought this is just purely um, 
motivational interviewing and relapse prevention. So which which really means that the maintenance part of motivational interviewing, that that stages of change concept is um, paid a lot of attention to, which is part of the problem in change. And it, this would be classic in sort of physical exercise change that people achieve something for a goal mm-hmm. and they get there and then they drop it. A mm-hmm. uh, good example for me, I remember when I was a young man playing football and I wanted to have a really good season and I stopped smoking Um so I was motivated. I stopped smoking, and then towards the end of the year, I dislocated my sternum in a tackle. Uh-huh. And the second I knew I'd done a, I thought I'd broken a rib. But the second the doctor said to me, "You've dislocated your sternum. That's your season." I went out and bought a packet of cigarettes. Wow, huh. right, there yeah. you go. So that you know, there's definitely, and one of the things I see, particularly as I age, and I and I still surf, and I watch people around me um, go hard at. That really you watch people's capabilities by how they respond to setbacks because in time you get injuries, you get setbacks. And I try to say to people, your setbacks are as much a part of your program as your successes. So you might pull into a barrel one day and break a rib the next. They're both part of surfing. You just take that yeah, you approach them both the same. But that is in in modern society, I think. That sort of appreciation is um, it's discounted a lot. People are acknowledged for their for their achievements and look at you, look at the look at your abs or whatever, look at what you can lift, look at how far you can ride your push bike. Um, but but it's not respected and acknowledged how you deal with the setbacks. And really, it's the setbacks that that you know they're part and parcel. You don't live, you don't do anything in the longer term without. Highs and lows. Far yeah. out. Uh, and so that's the, I mean, that's kind of the premise of Amazing. motivational interviewing is that people are ambivalent. Uh, they want to make it, you know, there's part of them that wants to make this change. And there's another part of them that doesn't want to make the change. And maybe they don't want to make change because they don't feel capable of the change. Or maybe there's good reasons, you know, apart from uh, their sense of their own efficacy. Maybe there's other good reasons for them to not make the change. Maybe the, the present situation has benefits for them. Um, and so, uh, when I learned motivational interviewing, um, you know, basically what I learned was when someone says like, oh, well, you know, here are the five reasons why exercise won't work for me. Um, you know, I would, uh, res- respond by basically summarizing and going, huh, okay. So you've got some really good reasons why exercise won't work. You've got reason one, reason two, reason three, and reason four. And on the other hand, what are some of the reasons that exercise would work for you? And so then you basically reflect that back and ask them to tell you the, you acknowledge it, you know, hey, yeah, I hear you. You're saying it's hard and here are the reasons it's hard. So I'm showing you what I've heard. And then it's like, okay, now you tell me what's on the other side of the coin. So is that still the thing or not? Uh, short term is not. They re- And that was the most interesting, there was two fascinating things. So Bill Miller came out probably three years ago now. They've rewritten their text. And there was two things in well, there was three things he talked about that really got my attention, that that were different to that are either changed or I didn't really get it. He talked a lot about um, Carl Rogers. He talked a lot about interpersonal relationships in motivational interviewing. And, and I'd Carl, Carl Rogers, sorry to interrupt. Carl Rogers oh, was yeah. uh, basically he did what I think is called person-centered therapy. We basically yeah. he basically yeah. didn't give the client any statements. It was all questions. 
<laughs> well, basically what he did, he's, the premise that he's most famous for is unconditional positive regard. Uh-huh. That was his, that's a Rogerian perspective, uh-huh. um, that it was relational. Um, and from Bill Miller's perspective, motivational interviewing is built on that. So your interpersonal relationship really matters. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that they'd rewritten the text and to take out exploring ambivalence because they had learned that exploring ambivalence makes people more ambivalent. So, and, all right. so, so, so Chloe comes to me and she wants to do some Pilates, but then on the other hand, she doesn't really trust herself to do it because she's actually tried personal training before and then she just sits down and gives me a whole list of reasons why this isn't going to work for her. So what do I, where do I go with that? Yeah, well, you, you look for the reasons that she's given you that it will work for her and that's what you talk about. Wow, and you don't go there anymore with acknowledging the, the things that they said could, are the reasons why it's not going to work. Could we just role play this out? Could you just, give, could, like, could you just show me how you would do that? Yeah, okay. Well, someone give me something to go to play, on. Who wants to be Chloe? I, I'll be Chloe. Okay. <laughs> Hi, Dad. Hi, David. <laughs> David, <laughs> you're the Pilates teacher. <laughs> yes. Um, but it would start with me. So I'd say, okay, yeah. Hi, Chloe, what brings you here today? Oh, I've got a sore back. And what made you think that this might well, I, I've heard that, that Pilates is meant to be, be good for backs. Um, you know, someone said I must have a weak core because my back's sore. So I've heard that, you know, coming to Pilates is going to help my weak core. But, you know, like, I don't know, I, I'm not really into Pilates. Like I've never done it before. You know, I prefer to actually just like, I don't know, I like going for a run, but my back hurts a bit when I go for a run. But I don't really like coming into class. Um, and, you know, I'm really, really busy busy with the kids and I just don't know how I'm going to fit this in. Um, but yeah, I've heard Pilates is good for my back. Okay. Yeah. Is, is there any more that you want to? Um, no, just so like I've tried different things, you know, for the last kind of like my back's sort of been hurting for, I don't know, on and off for years. And I, I just kind of feel like I've tried everything, you know, like, you know, I've tried a lot of things. Okay. So um, you're, you're really trying hard to change something. You really want to do something about it? Yeah, I, I do really want to do. I really do. I'm, I'm sick of my back hurting. It affects me when I want to, you know, play with the kids. Um, you know, it hurts when I'm, like, doing stuff, like, that I just like doing, you know, and it's, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, so it sounds like you're really motivated to try to improve your back. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's yeah. give it a go and see what happens. Oh, okay. Oh, oh that was that good. Was, that was ninja level good. So what Holy I love, hell. what I love I there. I forgot that he was my dad. So that he's, you are, dad. You've got superpowers. Um, what I love there was you, you ninjitsued. I've tried everything <laughs> and nothing worked. Into you're really trying yeah. hard because this is important yeah. to you. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. She was. She is really is trying hard, and she so wow. that. So when you, you wow. you're listening for the. I mean, it's just listening for the positive change talk rather than getting you getting caught up too in the negatives. Wow. So, so it's not just that exploring ambivalent tangles up the person trying to change. It tangles up the relationship. It tangles everything into it. And Bill, he spoke, so he spoke quite lot, quite comprehensively about that. And it's in the new text. And also he talked about um, they introduced being neutral. So some things you need to be completely neutral of. You're not 
encouraging. Um, they gave the example of someone that might be, because um, it was a clinical setting, so a woman that might be thinking about having an abortion or something really serious that you don't want to influence. Right. And being neutral is actually harder than what it seems. And I, I know when I, I used to get his book out and look up the neutral questions. So to be able to listen, to be, but to be neutral. Mm-hmm. Wow. So they, that was the difference. But, yeah, so it's about, um, look, people if people wouldn't, if for some reason or other, people are in front of you and it's that reason is the key. And, they, you know, and everyone feels a bit pushed into it, everyone. No one really, like you just, you'd really like to be perfect and life would be perfect and you didn't have to do much, <laughs> wouldn't you, really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it was interesting. I, I heard a guy the other day who I know who's um, one of these crazy pushbike riders and he went for a group ride where three of them, they, the plan was to ride all these mountains and they rode after dark and it spooked him and eventually the other guys pulled away from him and he turned around. Um, and then the next morning got up and rode 200 kilometres to to square it up. I mean, people, uh, I watched um, 14 Peaks about the... Oh, yeah. Yeah, like the Nepalese guy that climbed the 14 peaks over 8,000 metres. And, you know, what drives people inside is it's often inexplicable if you sit outside of it. But it, when people come to you to contribute to it, you're just listening for what they, what that positive bit is and then... If they can't see it, you just let them know. Wow, mm. you're that's incredible. So, yeah, right. so what I, I mean, what I was really impressed by there. I'm sorry, I'm still thinking about what you said with Chloe. Um, is that you? You found so um, you know what I learned, which was I don't know, probably six or seven years ago. I, I went across to New Mexico and and studied with Bill Miller and Terry, Terry Moyes over there. That was awesome experience. But what what I learned was that exploring ambivalence model. So, you know, Chloe says, oh, here are the reasons why I can't do it. And I would then say, oh, I acknowledge, okay, you've said this and this and this and this and this and this. And then on the other hand, what are some reasons why you would why you would do it? But what yeah. you did there was next level because you heard in all of her saying, here are the reasons why I can't do it, you heard the positive in that and you pulled that out and said, ah, oh, I hear you're trying really hard because this is important to you. Tell me more about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, mm. and that and when you just when you're listening for that sort of change talk, it stands out. Mm. But, yeah. but and that's so much more inspiring yeah. to me. Like to me, listening to that as opposed to someone saying back to me the things that I've already said are, are shit and in the way, mm. and hearing them back again, it was so. It felt really like I honestly had a moment where I forgot that that was Dad. He was so good at that, and it was like. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. Thank you. You see that I'm trying hard, and you know you're like that. That felt really like oh wow. Well, this is so great. Mm-hmm. I'm, yeah. You know, it felt. I felt yeah. I don't know. Much, yeah. much more inspiring. You know, Michael White, the the famous Australian narrative therapist, he used to talk a lot about the absent but implicit, and and I think you know in listening, it's a really important concept. So. You can flip the ambivalence around to absent but implicit. Mm-hmm. When people are telling you about things they don't like, in a way they're telling you about what they would like. Um, so you can reframe it just picking that up. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
the 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 thing you'd said before that as well um, was also I think noteworthy, which was basically the first thing you know, Chloe. You said you know, tell me why you're here, and Chloe basically gave you a little speech of like, okay, I've heard Pilates is good for my back, but you know, mm. reason why I can't do it, reason why I can't do it, reason why it's not going to work for me, reason why I don't want to be here, and you essentially just ignored everything she'd said and said. Okay, and what else do you want to tell me? <laughs> what else? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I did because it, it was clear to me there was more. So mm-hmm. if I had have taken up then, I would have been interrupting. Mm-hmm. So I just allowed a bit of space and asked, is there more? Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't jump in too quick. I gave room to get everything because that's, I mean, isn't it? If you, if you ask me how I, so I'm not a big, believer in casual conversation or first conversations is asking people how they feel about things. I'm more inclined to say, how's it going? Because you're, uh, you're giving them room to, to say, to talk about their feelings or anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's about like giving people space to convey enough information to you. If you're trying to inc- be useful for someone to pick up something, to get into a virtuous cycle rather than a vicious cycle, You've got to give them the space to give them to bring the information out before you pick up too early. And don't forget, often where people have had a million of these conversations, mm. they can role play them. You know, I could have got some of my clients could could have told me more about therapists and therapy than <laughs> half the therapists could have. And I and I notice, um, look, this is a bit of the modern world. I think we've all got to watch out for. Um, I notice nowadays in drug and alcohol treatment, they put people into therapy really early. Uh, You know, everywhere therapy is seen as a positive thing, but actually really what's positive is to be anchored in the reality of today and small, achievable, noticeable, reinforced positives in today. That's what builds into the future, you know, not – Understanding that, I don't know, I've got referred pain because of, you know, a childhood trauma or whatever. Not um, if you're injured from a car accident, not in your first conversation going, oh, well, what was it like being stuck in the car? Mm-hmm. Really, it's just give people a space. And then things will come out in their own time with, with um, that concept of unconditional positive regard and helping people build hope. Mm-hmm. People will build a relationship that's appropriate and feel safe enough to talk about the things that might come up or matter. Mm. And, um, yeah. Wow. That's, um, that's just blowing my mind there, dad, the way you've been able to explain that. And I think, um, Raph, we talk a lot about building a therapeutic alliance, don't we? We talk about this sense that, you know, building that that relationship with our clients, that trust with our clients, whether that be in a one-on-one setting or whether that be in a larger group setting. And, and we throw this word therapeutic alliance around a lot, right? But I, I, I feel like dad's just given us some really great tools there of how to actually go about building that because then, and then over time with that, that person's feeling that that trust and then they're able to share more with you, et cetera, I think is really, is really important. Like um, I think a lot of us probably jump in quicker than we need to. We know there's been all those, there's been studies done on, they did a study on um, how quickly doctors interrupt 
someone in an initial consult and it could you remember what the stats like were on that right seconds or something i can't remember the exact number. <laughs> be, yeah. right and it's like what <laughs> um so yeah i i think i i love that so you say you say what's going on as opposed to how you feel like what, what's going on for you or that that's your so we we often say raf in an initial consult we often open with the tell us your story would you see that as the same sort of thing or do you what do you think Dan? well uh, look let's let me just take it back to a bit of evidence about what works so mm-hmm. the, the biggest study ever done was a bunch of people hubble et al which what works in therapy and um in the, that it was a massive study and what it came up with that what the person brings into the room, what they want to achieve is 40% of the outcome. The therapeutic alliance or the therapeutic relationship is 30% of the outcome. Mm. 10% or what are we up there? Then 20% is hope, being able to build, hold or do hope. And 10% is the actual um, technique, whether it's CBT or what, how, what whatever it the intervention is. is. Right. Yes. So, so. Yeah, tell us, you know, I, I'd much, look, I, I'm, I wouldn't, because I'd go, what brought you here? That I like those sorts of what got you here today things because they're already you've given it a little bit of focus about what the purpose is because we've all got our own purpose. What mm-hmm. brings you here is a lot different to what might bring someone mm-hmm. to the shopping centre or that, like, so I like to just focus it in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like everybody, yeah, so people feel like, um, that even that's a like that elicits a fair bit. What what got mm. you here today? How'd you get here? What what mm. brought you in the door? What brought you in the door? Yeah. What, wow. You know what got you picking up the phone or the you know what, how come you clicked? What? Yeah. So, I love that. So the all right. So the the again trying to bring it back to sort of practical nuts and bolts things that that listeners can take away and and use is is uh, uh, starting with an open-ended question, you like things like, you know, why are you here, what brought you in, um, those kinds of questions, uh, and then basically shutting up and listening and, and you know, um, heroically avoiding the temptation to butt in with like, oh, yeah, I know, that happened to me. Is, and like, oh, have, have you tried such <laughs> yeah, and such? Yeah, my back hurts too. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so, so like resisting the temptation to jump in with solutions or, you know, anic- personal yeah. anecdotes. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And basically, you know, I think for most of us who who haven't practiced it, you know, consciously, you know, over a number of years, it's like really freaking hard to <laughs> to avoid just interrupting and jumping in and giving solutions before the clients really yeah. had a chance to yeah. to share what you know what's important to them. Um, so and then it's basically listening for what the clients listening for. What did you say? The implicit positive or the the positive? So it's yeah. listening for the positive. But it's basically yeah. If there's if there's no ob- explicit positive, yeah, <laughs> it's listening for the implicit the, positive. Yes, yeah. What Michael White called the absent but implicit, mm. and you know that um, with particularly with people who have been through the mill, one I think one good perspective for a listener is always, um, and this goes back to the referred by the partner thing. Get off to Pilates, you know, <laughs> that'll so, that'll fix it for you. Is that that drama triangle, I think it when there's pressure on people, that drama triangle so often comes into play. So the roles of rescuer, persecutor um, and victim uh, 
can like they often have been so present in people's lives, particularly with people we've got chronic conditions, um, that any invitation to join in that has to be resisted. And I know myself when I feel that invitation, I'm always at a loss. So my first thing is shut up, David, because nothing you can say now won't put you into one of these roles. And of course, mm-hmm. roles transfer, you know, in the end, like you failed me or, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, it's, an, it's a very, when in, in challenging conversations where I don't, so I, it was interesting as a beginning therapist, mm-hmm. um, the very first thing is, and still today, like, well, I'm retired now, but like still today, people will tell you what's going on for them and you will sit there and go, wow, I can't do anything about that. Oh, my God. Wow. Just so I learnt that just to let that roll over me, just let it roll over. I don't have to do anything about it. Let it roll over. It's perfect. It's normal to feel overwhelmed. And the human response to go, oh, okay, I can find a solution to it. I can fix it. It's about soothing me, not about providing. Right. Yeah. So I don't, so instead of trying to soothe me, I just let it roll over and through it. Oh, wow. I think that's so pertinent, Dad, because um, something that came up quite a lot in conversation when I was um, delivering the diploma and, and as a tutor for the diploma uh, and about having the these Pilates instructors now having these bigger conversations on, in a one-on-one basis with clients who, you know, might have had chronic pain issues and, and so on. And um, again and again, kind of them asking, well, how do we, how do we not take that on energetically how do I not come out of my day working with um these clients and and have taken that on board and and some of them were taking on the board and they're like you know how do we without disconnecting from it so that you're still there present for the client so some strategy so a strategy of yours is letting it roll over yeah just letting it roll through it's normal you know it's really if you um if you feel like you need to have power and solutions and fix people, eventually that will just become too much if you really deal with too many. Because chronic conditions, and it doesn't matter, like chronic pain is like anything. Chronic conditions, um, they are despair-inducing. So you, uh, uh, Michael White, again, he did this, fan, and this would be really interesting for you to do with people who have had long-term problems. He started mapping um he started mapping uh, as if it was a, an experience of emigration, um, women moving out of domestic violence. And he's, but his scale was, when I first saw the scale, so he would have, um, the map would have a scale of well-being and a scale of despair, one to ten, both sides. And I thought, despair, wow, that's a big word. And then he would have a point of departure. So cl- typically people before they made change were having a terrible time. So they were despairing. Mm-hmm. Then this change would happen and people would feel better pretty quickly. But then embedding the change, the realities of the change would come along. Um, in this case, people would have changed home and and they would drop, their scale of well-being would drop back into the top end of despair and usually oh, wow. take about a year to get out of it. So what he did, he mapped it so he could show people, look, you might have an experience like this. Let's map yours. Where are you on this scale? Wow. Um, and 
I became, I did it in a residential drug and alcohol service and it played out more or less the same. And I know often I will see people trying to change and I will think it in these terms and I'll say to them, you feel really bad now and this is starting to work. You're going to feel better. But remember then that you're not, you know, have a look at this. This is how change happens. You feel better, then you embed it. it it's not so special. People aren't saying, wow, how cool you are. This is really special. The reality of everyday life. Oh, your back's better. Good. Get a job. <laughs> Back to work. You know, do yeah. this. Do, do that. the dishes. Do the vacuum. Dig the garden. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's really, that is really interesting. And I also think, um, Raf, that that can tie in sometimes to when we're talking to clients with persistent pain, chronic pain, the the Toblerone analogy that, you know, it's a, it's a client, all of a sudden they start doing the thing, they get you know, they have a really couple of great days, great weeks, whatever, where, they've, where they're like, wow, I'm not being affected by this back pain. I'm not feeling it. And then something happens and who knows what it is. Maybe they had, don't know. Maybe they had a crappy sleep. Maybe they this or that. And all of a sudden they feel the pain again. And it's this sense of then they're like, oh, no, I've gone back. I've hurt myself. It, it's, you know, it's all bad again. But actually it's just the, it is actually the reality of moving through a state like that is it's not, it's not linear. It's not like you start here, you know, you feel your worst, you get here, you feel your happiest, and that's that's kind of where things stay. And from the stages of change perspective now, we're talking about maintenance. And I think really when you look at practitioners generally, it's the one that's neglected the most. Everyone goes, beauty, we've got to here. Wow, isn't that great? And then the work stops. But in reality... Yeah. The work should really begin there because that's people stepping into their new lives and their, uh, you know, the, the work. It's incredibly important. And you know, you asked me about working with people over long term, and you know, my so I've there, someone actually wrote a book called The Death to Empathy, which um, which I uh, it's it's I, but I attended a, a workshop from Beth Rothschild, the you know the trauma therapist. And she talked about the empathy dial, and she talked she talked about because we're we're empathetic generally with people because it literally means put yourself in someone's shoes, so we're more empathetic with people who we can relate to, mm. yeah, and less empathetic with people we can't. Um, and but Babette said to be useful, you need to turn your empathy dial down. Imagine your empathy dial from one to ten. She actually showed us a. She showed us a, a an emotional part of a movie to get everyone to tune into. Where wow! <laughs> mine was my, I've got to be confess, mine was reasonably down. But the, someone my, next to you was crying. They were all crying. Right. <laughs> okay. And can, she, can, sorry, can we just yeah. double click on that for a second, David? Because uh, this is a question we've had from a few people about. Um, well, firstly, what's the difference between empathy and compassion? And secondly, how I think very closely related. How do you protect your energy when you're working with clients? And I think you touched on it a moment ago when you said basically with that response to try and fix someone, that's really like a self-soothing response. And that's that's for you as the practitioner that you want to be the knight in shining armor and come in and fix, I think you said the protector or the savior or something like that, and, and come in and fix it for them. But actually, if you if we let go of that and recognize that actually we can't fix people and it's not our job to fix people. It's not our job to have the answers or the solutions. It's our job to just sit with them and help them become hopeful and help them take a tiny step forwards. Like that, a lot of that pressure comes off. And how, so how does that relate to this notion of, uh, you know, 
less empathy, or maybe not zero empathy, but you know, not overcooking the empathy <laughs> is 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 ideal, rather than sort of more empathy is better. Uh, because it's because you're a technical professional, really. That's the, and you've got a toolbox of different um, strategies that are going to help people achieve what they want to achieve around their goal. And you need to be thinking clearly on that. Um, rather than putting yourself in the shoes of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so so Babette suggests our empathy dial should be about a three. Wow, right yeah. down. Yeah, um, because really your role and the, your purpose is to think through the, pro- the, the problem from the perspective of how Pilates would work to support the person in achieving the change that they want and then applying that. So you really the, – the long and the short of it is not just about protecting protecting yourself mm. over long term from the emotional impact. It's about you thinking clearly and providing clear solutions and staying in the solution um, rather than getting bogged into just experiencing the problem. Wow, Dad, you hit the nail on the head. Staying in the solution as opposed to getting bogged into their problem is just that's that's a huge, that is a light bulb moment for me. I think that's going to help a lot of our listeners, um, Raph, who, excuse me, who grapple with this because ultimately all our listeners, they want the, I mean, we're grappling with this because we want to do the best thing, right, by our clients. And, And I think we can get mixed up with, well, the best thing seems to be being empathetic, really caring, feeling deeply for this person, but it's actually, no, the best thing we can do for this person is to think clearly, help strategize, help move them towards their their goals, right? And if you just take Rogers, again, go back to his unconditional positive regard, that's really, that's the therapeutic definition of compassion, of application of compassion. I know in spiritual practice and philosophy, you know, compassion's a big thing, but if for people who just want to understand it simply, Empathy is putting yourself into the shoes of the person um, and good, but they've, they're have they already in their shoes. They want someone to help them change it a bit. Don't and jump into compa- the hole with them. Yeah, don't jump into the hole with them. And compassion is, Rogers defined it for this sort of simply as unconditional positive regard. So there's no judgment. There's no, you know, that they're copying everywhere else. You're just lazy, just whatever, you're stupid, why didn't you do this? Mm. Um, you know, I now I know my mate with his chronic back, everyone's got an opinion. Like everyone has got an opinion. And a lot of those opinions come from a place of empathy, like, oh, yeah, but mm. none of them have helped them very much. Mm. So, the, so would that be like, you know, they're going, hey, well, this worked for me, this worked for my yeah. back, that, so this will yeah. work for yours kind of, yeah, yeah. 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 Wow. This is so interesting. That's so cool, Dad. All right. And so can you, um, David, can you just unpack that a tiny bit more and may, or maybe give us like a, the, the how-to guide, okay? So if I'm, if I'm sitting here with Chloe and she's telling me about her, you know, trouble situation with her back or whatever, you know, so how do, what, how do I think, you know, how do I frame, where do I focus my attention in order to avoid jumping in the hole with her and going, oh, gee, that's terrible. You know, I really understand. I can feel your pain. And and what mind frame do I cultivate? What does it mean to 
to cultivate unconditional positive regard? Like, what does that feel like? Or how do I go about doing that? And, you know, how do I know if I, if I succeeded there? How's it, how does it feel different to empathy? Um, okay. So if we use Chloe's example, what we so, which was a chronic pain one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it would be something like, um, okay, so you've really, you've really worked to find a way in the world to be with your kids. I'm trying to remember now to, to be with your kids, to be in your role, to be this while at the same time you've had this pain eating at your capacity to do it, undermining, white-ending your capacity to do it. Well, my role here is for us to work together to plan out um, a program that will see that might make slow, steady gains for your ability to do this. Now, I've heard that picking the kids up is the first one, so let's focus on that thing. Let's have a look at what bits of your body you use to do that. Let's have a look at them and let's start there. And that'll give us something to measure. So let's let's give ourselves a month. We'll do a month of this program. Now, you know, like you're going to feel a bit of pain afterwards. That's okay. I, I've seen clearly that you can handle that. Um, it may diminish, but first of all, let's focus on you being able to pick the kids up. And then once you can do that, then we'll, at the moment, the pain of that is on a scale of one to 10. What is it now? Oh, yeah, it's about eight. Okay, it's about an eight. So so we'll write that down. I'm going to record that. We're going to work for a month on that. Then we're going to see what's how would you rate your capacity to say how how often a day would you pick them up if it's an eight time? Oh, look, I mean, I, I'm sort of avoiding it at the moment. I'm having to get help with that. You know, my partner's sort of needs to do it instead of me. And, and it's, so it's getting, okay. it's, it's, it's impacting. Okay. Oh, well, yeah. we're going to give it two weeks, and in two weeks we're going to have a goal of a couple of times a day you can lift and cuddle your kids, and That'd then we'll, awesome. we're going to give it a month so we reevaluate the pain, and then we'll see what we'll we'll see where we're at. Then we'll take an inventory. Then where we're at. How's that sound? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. So you really um, pulled those kind of skeins together of, you know, you found the implicit positive. So it's like, okay, I can see you, you know, you've got a high pain tolerance. You've been working really hard. This is really important to you. You know, kids yeah. are a priority, all, all the positives, all the things she wants to move towards. And also affirming a lot of those you know, positive attributes. You know, she's worked really hard on this. She's got a high pain tolerance. I know you can take it, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and really essentially it's just what you said before. It's basically just ignoring the problem talk and the, what they call sustained talk reasons she, she can't do it, you know, and, and just you know, drawing out you know, and highlighting those positive, you know, statements and moving towards values. Yeah, because really that's, if, if that's my role, that's my job. Mm-hmm. So nothing, affirming what you can't do is not achieving. So my job is to technically sort it out and get it happening while Chloe feels like, I'm in her corner. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so the, the empathy, the, that unconditional positive regard is, yeah, right, you know, pe- people would, over my years, people would come to me with all sorts of things. Um, that's okay. That's just what we're working on. 
Like if you, you know, you, for a back injury, probably fine. Someone who's got a leaky bowel or something, I don't know. You know, whatever it is, someone who's smelly, someone who's something that it doesn't, whatever. It's, it's like whatever people feel, whatever people are there for with you, you're with them for that. Mm. That's the. Mm. It's brilliant. So you're in their corner, you're with them and you're solution focused and you're affirming their positive qualities and their hope and their efficacy. Uh, and you're also, you know, what's something they've emphasised a few times is, you know, working slowly, you know, making slow progress towards meaningful goals. Yeah. And uh, so we talk, so meaningful goals, because people only, um, so let's say we started at an eight and we got to, I don't know, a six in a month. Then the question is, okay, wow, fantastic. Righto. So now you're a bit experienced in this. What do you think we need to do to get to a five? What do you think our next thing is? And Chloe might say, well, I'm up for doing more of this and that. And then then my technical capacity comes in. I go, well, look, how about instead of trying to do more of that, we introduce this because this will, you know, and then we're getting our client in on us, collaborating. Mm. So what we're, this is a therapeutic alliance starting to happening. Mm. So, you know, that uh, there has to be an interrelation that a therapeutic alliance happens. There has to be a feedback loop. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I always challenge people in solution-focused therapy, you only talk that language is only the presence of something rather than the absence of something. You've got no idea for people who aren't used to those how difficult they are to have. And in your clients, that probably have a lot of problem-focused talk. So mm. for me to be completely solution-focused helps bring people into seeing because remember, like that change, particularly with chronic, but anyone who's struggling, if you get anyone, I mean, 30 or older that comes saying they've got a problem, they've probably been struggling with it for a decade. So, mm. Wow. I I I um I love how to I mean Dad you do it very very I mean you've got years of experience doing this you make it seem so easy and so seamless and I think it will be really useful for all of our listeners myself included to now implement this because I I think when I think about myself and I think about when I'm having these interactions with my clients I think my go to is if I'm not if they're, they're telling me something, you know, the, the, the thing that's heavy to them, the negative thing or et cetera, I find it hard not to acknowledge that or say that must be really hard for you or this or that because otherwise then I feel like I'm – and this is just me. This That's what I'm saying. Like this is the work we have to do is – as practitioners is we have to realise that that's not a reflection then if I don't say that back, it's not me not caring. In fact, I – I am caring more if I am there with the the positive the positive regard and the and this you know coming in to help with the the collaborative solution focus as a do you know what I mean I I feel like that's something that you do really easily but a lot of us yeah find tough. look role clarity it depends on your role doesn't it mm. it really depends on the role what you want to get to. That's what's so your role has to be clear. Your purpose mm. has to be clear as clear as well. And your role is to get people into um, 
into action, really. Mm. Into, into, your role is to get people into action. So you're listening for change talk that will build their motivation uh, for action. But look, again, another brilliant narrative therapy for, for this is to simply externalise the problem. Um, yeah, so you'd notice when I said to Chloe, that's really been pushing you around. Um, you know, it's been wine-anding you. It's like you, you come right. up with something that works for the person and you'll see them acknowledge it. You'll see them acknowledge it. Um, so the problem becomes the problem rather than the person. So you externalise the problem and you're given an externalised name, you know. So, yeah, yeah. So the, um, And then everyone can step back from it a little bit and if it needs to be acknowledged. If you've got a, right, different, gotcha. if yep. you've got a different role, um, Jeff Young, who's the director of um, the Bouvery Centre, the Family Therapy Centre, he came up with a model of therapy he called problem-focused, solution-oriented. That was a little bit of a change-up. It's a great short-term intervention. Um, and the concept is people wouldn't get in, people aren't willing to get into the solution with you unless they tell you about the problem. Um, so he would, he said then, his perception on that, and it, this worked pretty well too, um, with people who came along and said, ah, oh, this is fucking useless, what am I doing here? He would explore the problem. He described it like a terrier hanging on to the, your cuff and not letting go until no one had anything else to say about the problem and then he would explore the solution in exactly the same perspective. So if people, if you've got someone who just, you know, feel you fobbing them off right. from getting into the solution too quick, mm. then um, you can do that. And he would just keep going like, yeah, okay, what's it doing? How's it doing it? Um, but it were, for people who really didn't want to be there, it would work quite effectively, especially right. if they felt they were getting fobbed off. Um, yeah, that's yeah. really interesting. So just so basically letting them, like he kept sort of he, probing a little bit, he, like tell me more about it, tell he, me more about he'd it. He questioned the problem. Yeah. Question the problem, yeah. right. And then he'd question the solution. Right. Yeah. All right. This is very, but very The problem is if you do that, you might end up, uh, talking to someone for a few hours and then going, beauty, forget Pilates. <laughs> I'm fine. I, feel a lot better now. Yeah. I just needed to get all that off my yeah, chest. Because what we're saying is if people are coming for a, for an exercise-based solution, for a yeah. physical solution, there's a physical problem and it's really important that the activity that might respond to it gets happening. Right. Mm. Yeah. All right. So the last thing I just want to ask you, David, is when when should we not have a change conversation with someone? Uh, well, I guess when they when you get you're neutral if someone's going to make a big decision. Oh, I think I should get divorced. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> Just because, you, listen, you know, that might be a bit much just because your wife sent you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that, um, look, I, that's, a, that's a really astute ethical question, Raph. That's what that is because sometimes, I mean, I would say generally if you honestly believe that your solutions might make things work for them or there's a, there's a risk, um, it's an that's an ethical question, 
uh, when should I not intervene in this? Um, and you know what? I, with with my work with people, if I come up to an ethical question, so it's not just clear neutrality. I need to say it's a very important. I don't want to have any influence on this decision, but it's something that poses an ethical dilemma. Should be or shouldn't? I would explore it with the person. I would say, gee, when you tell me about this, I feel like um, there's a dilemma. Paradoxically, you might do that which solves that, but it might create that. Mm. Like I would then, I think if it's if it's an ethical dilemma in the therapeutic alliance, you just put it on the table. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Mm. And um, just finally, I know I said that was the last question. But, <laughs> um, uh, you know, for 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 Pilates instructors, moving professionals who are not mental health professionals and who are having these change conversations with people around exercise, around changing lifestyle behaviours, around chronic pain. So it might be around, you know, people changing their sleep habits or changing their work habits or changing their self-talk around pain, um, you know, various aspects of, of, of that. Um, you know, how do, where, is there a bright line or how can you tell when, it's, when you're out of your depth and it's time to refer on to a mental health professional? Um, well... That, yeah, that's another good ethical question, isn't it? Um, because people have come to you rather than the mental health professional. Mm-hmm. Um, so you uh, look personally, I think that's about understanding role. It's really incredibly important. And workplace stress, um, particularly when you're dealing with big issues, is all uh, being out of role. Um, uh, role is your spacesuit. While you're in role, while you know what your role is, your job purpose is, everyone's on pretty safe ground. Um, so I would say you simply say, look, my role here is to we're going to work on this together, this physical attribute. You're saying to me that this side of it is causing you all this distress. Have you tried going to a therapist. Have you tried a mental health intervention? Do you think it's worth it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because we can only go this far. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, there's a there's a real interrelationship between physical well-being and mental well-being, which gets totally disregarded. People will diagnose mental health issues when people are just demoralised. They've been in like there's definitely an interrelation and physical well-being is a massive contributor that the mental health people just don't particularly, you know, they'll just say, oh, it's a mental health issue. Mm. Um, so you so you can say to people, you can be somebody, you can say, look, there's a definite interrelationship with your well, sense of well-being or despair using Michael White's scale and how, how you are physically. You can do on Michael White's scale, where are you? Are you on up in the despair bit or the well-being or how, mm. where are you on that scale at? So, okay, so you're really despairing. I'll tell you what then, I'll do your deal. If you don't want to see a mental health professional, let's do a month of this. You're you're at eight out of ten despairing now. Let's see where you are. So in a month, if they're a nine or a ten, you go, okay, it's not working, it's time. But if there are six or seven, go, well, maybe there is a correlation. Do you want to keep going? Give mm-hmm. people choice. Mm. But map it, externalise it, make it visual, mm. get it out. I love drawing things. Draw it on the board. Go, where are you? 
keep a rest, yeah. Mm. Great. Help people collaborate to make their own decisions. I love it. Um, the I love what you say there that the person, you know, they might be experiencing mental uh, distress or emotional distress, but they didn't go to a mental health professional. They came to see you and you're a movement yeah. professional. And so that you know, we've got to acknowledge that's like they've already made a choice there. <laughs> that, yeah. That this is the way they want to work. And so if we say like, hey, I can't help you, go see a psychologist, yep. that could actually you know, not be helpful for that person. Uh, and look, Raph, I've spoken to so many people that have had that experience. And then not only, and then they don't go to anyone. They go, no one can fucking help me. Mm. I'm hopeless. I'm too hard for all of them. I've so many people that have said that. I'm just too hard for everyone. Yeah. And so even if we do have the conversation about um, mental health professional uh, intervention, we should, you know, unless we feel like we're physically at risk or anything like that, yeah. we should we should continue to work with the person, right? So there's no reason why you can't continue to work with that person and they go and see a mental health professional. The, the, in fact, there's no, that's great, fantastic. Mm. Look, the awkward things come when people, um, everyone gets occasionally, but in my career, I haven't got too many. When someone just says, well, all right, if you don't do this, I'll kill myself. You know, you, so those extremes are extremes. And if someone does that to me, if anyone threatens to kill themselves, I just go, where are you? And I call the police and say, please do a welfare check. Mm. And generally people don't threaten to kill themselves in front of me then because the cops have arrived. Mm. And if they were thinking about it, the cops have arrived. So don't, don't worry about it. Don't call mental health services. Just call the police. That's my experience. The police will go and do a welfare check instantly. Mm. Good mm. tip. Okay. Wow. Wow. What a conversation. Mm. This has just been uh, just nuggets of gold just being dropped left, right and centre. Dad, I feel like um, this has been, yeah, I mean, it's such a special conversation and it's such a, a treat for me to get to have you here on the podcast. Um, it's, I just feel like this is one for the, one for the family history books, which is <laughs> <laughs> just so lovely. Thank you for helping facilitate that, Ralph. Yeah, it's been it's been uh, awesome. It's been very special. I've learned a, a, quite a few things. So thanks very much, David. <laughs> thanks for having me. Yeah, there was so so many amazing resources in there too for um, for our listeners to look up as well. So yeah, yeah. We'll link to those in the show notes. So yeah, thanks very much. I think uh, I just want to um, Chloe and I actually just want to give you a round of applause, David, just to finish up. So. <laughs> <laughs> good, good use of that. Good use of that button, button wrap. And Dad, congratulations on being retired. Thank you. Yes, that must that's feel good. Lucky you got me now before I forget everything. <laughs> well, we can invite you on the podcast again. You won't remember. <laughs> yeah, have the same, same conversation again. <laughs> oh, thank you, Dad. You're a gem. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Ralph. See ya. See ya. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. 
And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.